Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. And as this is both the first episode of a brand new podcast and the 14th episode, technically, of an old podcast, I've got a lot of, or some housekeeping stuff to to get out of the way here first before we, we jump into the movie that we're going to be talking about this week. So I'll try and get this all cleared up this quagmire of a situation we're in as as quickly and concisely as possible so that we can get on with the the new business of talking about the movie that we're all here to discuss. So, first off, the this show used to be a podcast called 14 Months Apart, and that's something that I was hosting with my sister, Jacqueline Barrow. And on that show, we were discussing uh, films and TV shows that were important to us as young people, important to us as adults, in a way to try and figure out as a brother and sister team how we ended up as such different writers and media connoisseurs, despite having grown up watching basically the same movies and TV shows, reading the same books, etc. So that has been a very fun process up until now. Um, we, we've enjoyed it immensely, but it's a new year. New years bring change. Change can be good, even though it sometimes can be a little sticky in the moment. So the major change that has occurred that has uh, facilitated the need for this, this rebranding of the show is that Jack has accepted a position as a full-time professor at Sir Sanford Fleming College. Yay! Three cheers, exultations, the peasants rejoice. What that means is, despite the fact that she's super successful and has her dream job, it means that she won't be able to devote as much time to the show as she had been previously. Between the new job and being a a mom to two great kids and a, you know, a a wife, a daughter, sister, all those other things that that take up a person's time, the, the free time that she has has now become very precious. So what we've decided to do is that the show is going to be rebranded as the Steal My Name podcast and is going to become, for the most part, a solo affair. Yes, I've gone completely mad with power and I have, I've made up all that. I've actually just, I've ejected Jack from the show and it's all about me, me, me. No, all that was true, but we wanted to continue, or I wanted to continue on in, uh, in a podcasting capacity. So how it's going to work is this, the 14 months apart um, format is going to continue, but in a much more limited basis. It's going to become a reoccurring segment on the Steal My Name podcast. So we're hoping to do an episode once a month, maybe once every six weeks or so. So if you if you're here just for that, uh, it will be continuing on, uh, just on a much more limited basis. But to help fill that missing time. The Steal My Name podcast is now going to be actually a weekly show. Yay! So as a as a solo act, I'm going to be able to cover a lot more films, um, films that didn't necessarily fit into the 14 months apart concept, because that's a very specific concept where we have to come up with films and movies that we can really work the idea of how we diverged, how we changed, brother and sister duo, etc. Where there's still a lot of other things I want to I want to talk about, movies that I feel deserve a second look, uh, or movies like we're going to be talking about today that everyone in the world is already looking at. So if you're new to the show, if you're just joining us, so if you're not here for episode 14 of 
14 months apart, or 13, 14 months apart, you're here for episode one of the Steal My Name podcast. Just what the hell is this whole thing going to be about? So the Steal My Name podcast is going to cover movies, TV shows, and books, kind of an all-around approach to media. Um, I, I consider, I, you know, I, I love to read, I love to watch movies, I love TV, so I wanted to create a show where I could talk about all of those things at once in, you know, in the same little, you know, di- easily digestible bubble, easily digestible package. So that's what the Steal My Name podcast is going to be. Um, I guess if you're if you're brand new to this, I should give you a little information about myself. Uh, as I said, my name is Bob Barrow. I am a screenwriter. I am a novelist, short story writer, filmmaker, movie collector, student of cinema in general. Uh, horror exploitation is kind of my specialty. I'm a ravenous VHS collector, book collector, I've been podcasting for many years. Uh, if you are, uh, if you're familiar with my old work, I had a show on the Modern Superior Network with, uh, called "A Frame Apart." Uh, I was blessed with a great co-host there, Ariel Fisher, where we would take a look about two movies each week, whether the connection between them was obvious or not, and kind of compare and contrast them. That's if you're familiar with that show that I had, that's going to be kind of how the Steal My Name podcast is going to work. The style that I was using on that show is going to be what I'm going to be trying to bring over here. So not a super academic, hardcore, pick apart, deep dive into a film, but just really kind of get into it, talk about what I like, dislike, what worked, what didn't work, and just try and get an, an overall understanding of the of the movie or two that we're going to be talking about that week. But I also promise TV and books. So each episode, you're going to get a movie or two, and you're also going to be getting a weekly rewatch and breakdown of what I consider to be one of the great shows ever made, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Now, that announcement probably just caused one of two reactions. Either you went, oh, fuck, Star Trek, every single week, and just completely shuddered, or you went, awesome, DS9 is super dope, and I cannot wait. So, I... I wish both of you well in that camp, whichever camp you fall into there. I love DS9. I'm glad it's going through a bit of a revival right now, and I want to contribute to that revival and reappraisal however I can by doing my little part of it. And we're going to be wrapping up the show each week with talking about the the book that I've either finished that week or that I am desperately slogging through. Um, I, I love to read. I'm a big collector of books, so I thought it would be fun to talk about that as well. Now, in terms of my writing, I guess for a little shameless self-promotion, but I guess considering the fact that I named the show after my production company, you can't get much more shameless than that. But as a wise bass player once said, branding, Bob, brand, very important. So if you want to check out some of my writing, you can visit the stealmynamelibrary.wordpress.com. There's about 14 or 15 short stories up there, along with a smattering of poetry. It's mostly genre-focused, but there's there's some horror, there's some dramatic stuff, there's some comedy. There's a little bit for everyone. At least I hope so. So please feel free. Every little bit helps. It's always fun to, you know, to have your work read. You know, it's easy to say, I only do this for myself and I don't care what anyone thinks because the reward of the process is enough. Well, there is some truth in that. There is also a lot of egg soak malarkey in that statement. Obviously, as an artist, you want to have your work 
whether read or listened to or seen or watched or appreciated. So I would very much appreciate it if you could check that out. So enough about me. Hopefully you'll get to know more about me as we go along, as you guys join me on this journey that is the Steal My Name podcast. So we'll get into what we came here to talk about today. So the movie that we're going to be discussing is the movie that everyone in the world right now is talking about. You don't get much bigger than this. And obviously what we're talking about is cats. No. Oh God. I, from that, what can I say? What can anyone say about that? The trailer for that film speaks volumes. Now I know there's, I've heard some snippets of horror stories behind the scenes of problems with directors and stuff or whatever, or studio or the effects or whatever, but it just doesn't matter. I guess really the only positive thing I could say is you got to commend the gigantic brass balls on Universal to try and open this up against some a behemoth like Star Wars. <laughs> they it, It's either they felt so confident in this film that they could not possibly fail, or they literally picked up an actual, it feels like they picked up an actual cat and just pitched it under the wheels of the bus that is Star Wars. So, yeah, what we're here to talk about is The Rise of Skywalker, Star Wars Episode Nine. Yay! Da, 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 da. That's uh, not any part of the Star Wars theme, but it felt right in the moment. Now, I guess I should say before we go any further, spoilers, obviously. Spoilers. If you have not seen The Rise of Skywalker, as much as I would love for you to sit and listen to me prattle, uh, I, I mean, sound very intellectual for the next hour or so, do yourself a favor and just don't listen to this. Go see the movie first. What surprises there are to be had, go and enjoy them. You know, I, I hate spoilers. I hate ruining films for people. And I would hate to think that I was the reason that this film got was ruined for you. So please, if you haven't seen it, stop now, go watch the movie. So spoiler warnings done. Let's talk about Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Now, this film has an almost impossible task in two regards. One, it has to bring about some kind of closure to the Skywalker saga as a whole. So that's the prequel trilogy, the original trilogy, and this new trilogy of films, whatever we'll end up calling it, it'll be named after the fact. But it also has to somehow try and pick up the pieces and create a satisfying ending from the pile of rubble that The Last Jedi left this new story in. And... That's a, it's a Herculean task. What do you do? There's a film like The Last Jedi, which has been discussed to to the nth degree. It's the most divisive Star Wars film that we've had to this point, even more so than the prequels, because I think, unless you're an apologist, we can all agree that the prequels was just an unfortunate situation. But with this new trilogy, 
you know, The Force Awakens had kind of set us up for a fun new rousing adventure, and then The Last Jedi just strolled out onto screens and just for the most part, other than a few fun scenes, just kicked us right in the crotch and drug this story to a complete and utter halt. So where do you go? How do you pick up from where it left off? Abrams and co, they do an admirable job. This movie was fun. I had a smile on my face for most of the film, sitting in the theater, and was like, oh, cool, fun. Star Wars was fun again, because The Last Jedi was not fun. I get I get all the arguments. Oh, it's a meditation on failure, and blah, blah, blah. all that is great, but you still have the responsibility of making the films fun. You know, The Empire Strikes Back was a dark film where everyone, they're just kind of losing at every turn, but you're still having fun joining them on this adventure. So that's what was nice about this time around. You know, we're go- I'm going to try and talk a little bit about, you know, first off, the things that worked that I really liked about it. Because I don't, I don't just want to piss all over the film, but I also don't want to pretend that I'm not having a contentious opinion and that I went and saw a movie and ran to the internet to talk about it. Because that's literally what I'm doing here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be fair, but at the same time, you know, call bullshit where it is. So the best part of this film of The Rise of Skywalker is the fact that our three main characters, Ray, Finn, and Poe, actually get together and have an adventure. These three characters had a huge amount of pot- potential in a group dynamic. And it's not so much that their backstories or the characters themselves are are richly interesting. It's the actors playing them have such a great chemistry. You know, when Ray and Finn are having their, you know, adventure on the Millennium Falcon with Han Solo in, the, in Force Awakens, all that stuff's fun. The, the bickering and the back and forth and the playful banter. And then it all comes to nothing in the second film. Everyone is completely separated. We are given, you know, new characters that just don't play in the dynamic as well. I know the issue of Rose in The Last Jedi is is contentious, mostly because of uh, the toxic sides of fandom. I, I don't think the character was overly necessary in The Last Jedi. Or if there was more to it, I think it was just mishandled. Uh, I'm obviously not going to be participating in that toxic side of it. That's just absolutely despicable and reprehensible how certain parts of fandom decided to handle that. But I I don't know what that character was doing there. If you're going to have, you know, your characters break off and go on adventures, they need to go together. You know, if... Empire, if Last Jedi is just the Empire Strikes Back again and Rey's going off to train with Yoda slash Luke, then that means Leia and Han go off and have their adventure, which means Poe and Finn go off to the casino planet and have their adventure together. That would have been fun to see. So that's the great part of the first half or so of this film is getting to watch the three of them interact. While it's fun and enjoyable, it almost becomes frustrating because it's like, fuck, could not we have done this earlier? This is what we came to see. This is what we wanted the whole time. And it's nice that we're getting some of it, but I can't help but feeling like 
it's a too little, too late situation. And I think that's kind of the mantra of a lot of feeling about this film is that, yes, we're finally getting some good, fun, engaging Star Wars stuff, but it really does feel like too little, too late. But the bits that we do get are fun. Now, the elephant, I guess, in the room here is the return of Palpatine, Emperor Palpatine. Or I guess he isn't the emperor anymore. So just old Palpy himself. That's cool. Like if you're looking, if you're treating this holistically as nine films as a part of one saga, Palpatine is actually hugely responsible. He's responsible for the whole thing. He's the the puppet master in the prequel trilogies. He's the power behind Darth Vader in the original trilogy. And the idea that his, you know, ghost is still haunting these people in this new trilogy, that's kind of inspired. You know, that brings everything full circle. But you have to set that stuff up. You can't just drop him in because you're left without a villain, a big villain, because The Last Jedi decided to just be revisionist as fuck and just clear everything out that had been set up in Force Awakens. Oh, Snoke's too much like the Emperor. Well, we should just kill him. Well, now we're left without a villain. Yes, I guess they're going to position Kylo Ren to take over that role. But we also know that he's been set up to have some kind of redemption. So we need we need a central villain. So if from moment one they had have planned and plotted this out. So we're starting to get clues and hints of Palpatine's involvement, this shadowy puppet master again in the background. That could have been fun. Instead, he's dropped in right at the top, and we're given about five or six minutes of, you know, spooky fun dialogue, but it is just desperately trying to cram information in and, you know, rise of the retcon this situation that, you know, remember when Darth Vader spoke to you, Kylo, in the first film? That was me. Didn't you like my impression? I could throw my voice, fool my friends, fun at parties. Oh, Snoke, actually, he's a kinder surprise that we manufacture right here on the planet. Yes, this is my Palpatine voice. Can't you tell? Ha 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 ha. I thought it was a dead ringer. Like, now, I have to say the, the Kinder Egg tank with the floating Snokes in it was was pretty funny. But you... I, I can suspend some disbelief in the moment when I'm in the theater. And if you can suspend a lot of disbelief in the theater with this film, you, you can have some fun, but you can't start asking it any questions because it's a film that has no answers for you. It's just like, look, this is what's happening right now in front of us. Just go with this. And then the next scene will start and then you'll be involved with the next scene. If you start pulling threads, the whole carpet of this comes undone. The Palpatine stuff 
could have worked. It's another one of those missed opportunities because nothing in this new trilogy was planned. And they've been vocal about this. It's not like some kind of Watergate scandal where it was, you know, somebody, you know, leaked some information out, some documents out, you know, uh, many boffins paid with their lives to get this information to us. No, they were vocal. J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan sat down and wrote The Force Awakens, set up a bunch of fun stuff, Captain Phasma, the Supreme Leader Snoke, the Knights of Ren, all these neat, fun things, Luke in Exile, this new issue of the what the Rebellion has turned into the Resistance, the First Order, all these characters, you know, their, their individual dynamics, and instead of even having a basic outline of where these could go, they took more of a relay race approach to this. Where, nope, we're not going to answer any of these questions. We're just going to give it to the next filmmaker, and it's going to be their responsibility to add their own little flourish, to figure out where these story elements go, and then they're going to do it and then pass it off to the third and final filmmaker, and it's going to be their job to take and resolve all of these plot threats. That's one way to do it. That's, it's either hubris to a fucking massive degree or it's a sense of of naivete a, a naive approach to to filmmaking and this kind of complex storytelling that is shocking for filmmakers at this level you know Kathleen Kennedy in charge of Lucasfilm is an incredible producer she's been involved in some of the best films ever made you know this is an incredibly competent producer businesswoman And I feel like she should have known better than to try this approach. Uh, I, you obviously can't get anyone's head and I scold her for this, but the same with someone like JJ Abrams to have this kind of weird overconfidence in all of their abilities to do this because even George Lucas had a semblance of a plan with the original trilogy. I'm not saying he sat down and wrote all three movies and they were set in the stone and ready to go. And depending on what interview you read, it goes from a one or two page document of ideas all the way up to, you know, a gigantic series of books that he apparently wrote before he made the first movie. But there was some kind of plan in place. There were ideas of like, okay, if this happened, then this could happen. Even a loose outline. You you can't tell giant stories like this without knowing where they're going. You know, another great parallel to this is the Lord of the Rings. You know, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, they knew what was going to happen. They had they wrote the scripts, and yes, there were sweeping changes across the films as they were in production because they're a living animal. But they still knew where they were going. Then you look at the Hobbit movies where they had no real idea about anything that was happening. But even in those cases, they at least had the books to follow. Here, you're creating something brand new. You have a responsibility to sit down and at least have a semblance of an idea. Or if you're the next filmmaker getting the baton, you have some responsibility that when that person hands you the baton to at least walk forward not shit your pants and sit down and refuse to move until the third guy has to come back, grab the baton for you, and not only run their race, but they have to run your race too. 
So you're doing double duty. And that's what a lot of this film is. There's so much shit going on because it has to set up so much stuff and then pay it off because it didn't have two other films setting things up to be paid off. So we end up with a very muddy, busy film, which is why, you know, with Palpatine being crammed in there, it's desperate. They're reaching, you know, it's probably better than just bringing in some left field bad guy, you know, like in the prequels. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, shit, now we have General Grievous. Okay, I guess we have that guy now that we have no attachment to as a villain. But whatever. You know, at least we know Palpatine. At least we have some experience with him. And Ian McDermott is does a great job here. Always does. He's the best part of the prequel trilogy because he's just hamming that, you know. He's just William Shatner on rye with those performances. And, and here he's fun, and there's genuinely spooky parts on, on Exegol, the Sith planet, where they go, where he's been hiding, whether it's his ancient self and he's been cloning himself, or this is just another clone and his force ghost possessed it after he died on the Death Star. They're not really clear about it, how this all connects and ties together, which is is another thing that's frustrating because it's you're just they're just kind of shoving him at us and go exp- deal with it. This is your villain now. Here, look, Palpatine. Just have fucking Palpatine. It's like nachos in your fucking face. Just don't ask questions. Just eat it. So, but at least with the presentation of the of the Sith Temple and all the the writhing Force ghosts and everything, it's genuinely creepy. You know, it's as close to kind of gothic horror as the Star Wars movies have really ever got, which is is fun to see. You know, we're we're in a literal Frankenstein's laboratory, you know, Dracula's castle. You know, it's it's Star Wars goes universal horror with this stuff. And that's that's fun. You know, that's cool. It's we just kind of fall back on the same traditional powers that he uses. You know, at the end, he just, oh, look, you've been all cool and spooky and dramatic. Force lightning, cool, I guess. You know, lightning's neat. But how much cooler of it would be if you're making a statement about how powerful this guy is? You know, he opens the roof of the temple and you see the fleet and everything losing. And he just raises his hand and just steals the hope from everyone. Instead of blasting them all with lightning and this, you know, it's visually dynamic and we've only ever seen Sith Lightning on a very tiny scale. But how cool, like, dig deeper. Try harder to do things. But anyway, the Palpatine stuff is at least, it's fun to see him back. And he's, like, as I said, he's creepy and weird. The whole idea of Rey being his fucking granddaughter is, <sighs> I, I get it in a writing room sense. You know, it's the, these are ideas you come up with because this whole idea of Ray's lineage has been so contentious. You know, they, they set it up in the first one that she's a, an orphan with a mysterious past. And one of the best parts of The Last Jedi is when Kylo Ren tells Ray, you're no one. Your parents sold you for booze money. You have no place in this story. That is so inspired because what that means is Ray is us. 
she's not a Skywalker. She's not a Kenobi. She's not a Palpatine. She's not a Solo. She's not any of these characters that have, for the most part, just been fucking the galaxy up for decades now. She's a completely unknown new element introduced into this. So that allows us to inhabit Rey, to live vicariously through her, because that means anyone now can be a hero in the Star Wars universe. You don't have to be part of a famous family. You know, it's not like this, you know, almost royalty style approach where you're handing down, you know, the the bullshit of your parents from generation to generation to, you know, fight either the rebellion or the empire. And I thought that was great because it liberates the trilogy from all that crap. And if they were going to position Kylo Ren to be the final villain in the third one, no redemption, no nothing, you know, Ray kills him. That means, and then all the other, you know, Luke, Han, fuck, Luke, Han, and Leia are gone. You know, I guess keep Chewie around, but everyone else is gone. It's the, the Star Wars saga is now clean and it could go off in any number of directions, but it's brand awareness, right? People know the names. So it's, well, we can't make her a Kenobi. We can't make her a Skywalker because we've already got Kylo Ren. Palpatine. Some people remember the Emperor. Don't you remember the Emperor, guys? Shut up and eat your fucking nachos. So now we have Rey is Palpatine's granddaughter. Even though the timeline of that is muddy, because that means he was out there making babies after he was the Emperor. Now, I get it. You're the Emperor. You know, it's your you know, harems and all that kind of stuff. It's not like there's historically without precedent, but it's just gross because I can just imagine the state of the rest of his body, given the look of his face, but I won't get too far to the the dark side of his penis or anything because that's just gross. But those parts were fun and it was a shame to see that taken away and kind of, you know, redacted out of the saga. But there's a lot of those kind of reverse fuck you moments in this movie. Some of them are fun and a nice twist, but some of them like the Ray Palpatine shit just muddy the story and it just it's unnecessary. You know, The Last Jedi had some kind of fuck you JJ Abrams moments that Ryan Johnson, whether intentionally or not, put in, you know, right off the hop when Ray gives Luke the lightsaber and he just pitches it over his shoulder like he doesn't give a shit. You know, Kylo Ren smashing his helmet. He's like, oh, you just look like a clone of Darth Vader. Get rid of that helmet. So what does J.J. Abrams do in this one? Has Kylo Ren put his helmet back together? Which I love because I love the design of that helmet. I like how intimidating and intense he looks in it. I like that he stays in it and fights in it in this movie. And also, after Rey gets all this bad news, finds out who she is, she's doomed, she's just going to be one more crappy Jedi that's making the universe a worse place, goes back to Luke's Hermit Island. I'm going to stay here. I'm done with the Force, done with the Jedi. Goes to pitch the lightsaber. And Force Ghost Luke catches it and says a Jedi's weapon is his most important possession. Be more careful with it. Don't just throw it away. And then proceeds to say, I was wrong for sitting here on the island. So just, we're just completely negating everything that happened in The The Last Jedi. Which, as someone that didn't like The Last Jedi, that's a nice thing to say or see. But... 
from someone that appreciates really good storytelling and has some kind of expectations from a new Star Wars trilogy, it would have been nice if the filmmakers could have gotten together as a unit, decided what they wanted to do, instead of spending the second and third movies of their trilogy kind of spatting back and forth about what they think it should be and not getting on with the storytelling. So that would have been nice, but, you know, it's not what we got. It's what we're left with is is a fun film with no planning that in years to come is inevitably going to be compared to, you know, another big franchise that came to an end this year that didn't just have eight other films and auxiliary other properties to wrap up. It has something like 21, 22 films to take care of. And that's Avengers Endgame. That's, you talk about Star Wars being an impossible task to wrap up. The, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's, that's another level. That is astronomically impossible, the, what they accomplished there. And Avengers Endgame does it. You've got, you know, a dozen, two dozen movies. You've got dozens of characters. And living and dead... And everyone has to get some kind of a fun payoff here. And they do it because it was planned. Because, you know, I'm not saying that Kevin Feige, they knew from right before they made Iron Man, they had every single movie mapped out, but they had an outline. They knew where they would like to go. And they worked out, if we can get here, these are some of the ways we could get here. And this is how we could start to connect things. So you have this slow build towards a very interwoven, interconnected universe. And it peaks with Avengers Endgame with an incredibly rousing finish where you feel like everybody got their due in one way or the other. You know, Star Wars should know better. It should it should have a better grasp on this. You know, the, these people making these films are more seasoned filmmakers. They've been in the business longer than the guys at Marvel. So it's a shame that they dropped the ball like that. But despite the problems with Rise of Skywalker, and most of that comes from writing, there are neat things that they did put in here to help push it forward. The introduction of new force powers that was cool to see. Those were moments where you could hear people kind of going, oh, ah, you know, in the theater where you were getting that kind of participatory reaction. You know, when, you know, we set up this kind of psychic connection between Ray and Kylo in the last movie, and they really push it forward here, where despite the fact that they're in different places, they can actually fight with each other. They can impact each other's environments. They can take things from each other, you know, so which leads up to that awesome scene at the end where Ray drops the lightsaber behind her back and then Kylo picks it up at another location and just kills all the Knights of Ren, which is cool. That part is, that is genuinely neat, man. I dug the hell out of that, which brings us to the force healing. Now, this one is, this one's kind of a two-parter. It's cool. It's a cool new force power. Kind of felt like something from the video game, which is neat. I got no problem with that. You know, you got a whole expanded universe of stuff out there. Start bringing stuff in. Cherry pick it and use it. 
You know, don't just let it sit over there like it's something separate that needs to be, you know, left alone in the corner to think about what it did. But the if you're a Star Wars fan, then you've probably been watching The Mandalorian on Disney Plus. Awesome show. Super dope. Shows the potential of the Star Wars universe and what you can do with the smaller scale of storytelling. But the Wednesday before the Rise of Skywalker came out, they showed the episode early in the week and Baby Yoda healed someone on the show, Carl Weathers' character. The fact that you watch that happen in a TV show on Wednesday and then you go to see a movie the next night and that's directly reflected in that movie, that's, I think, signals a change in how going forward we're going to be dealing with media. It seems like such a small thing, you know, because there's been, you know, like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Marvel show, it reflected changes that happened in the movies. You know, when S.H.I.E.L.D. fell, it changed the dynamic of the show. Obviously, they've done some little bits in the Star Trek movies and TV shows in the past where they kind of had a little call out or a callback to something that happened in a movie. Um, But something this interconnected where you're setting up something in a show and then paying it off in a film, this is going to be kind of the patient zero that we look back on when our interaction with franchise media changed where it's no longer about just you go to the theater, you watch the movie, you know, there might be some Easter eggs hidden in the background for, you know, if it's a comic book movie or if it was a a remake or adapted from a novel where you can, if you're a hardcore fan, you can sit there and go, oh, look, there's that shit. Oh, neat. They threw that in the background. This is different. You don't have to watch The Mandalorian to appreciate this. But I think it's, you know, it's the first steps into a larger world of interconnected media. And we're going to see this really explode next year in the MCU with the Disney Plus shows. Um, shows like Falcon and Winter Soldier, WandaVision, Loki, and then leading into the movies because Kevin Feige and Marvel have said directly that, or said explicitly that events in the shows are going to directly impact what happens in the movies. So they're not necessarily forcing us to watch it, but they're kind of forcing us to watch it. Now, me, I'm an easy sell. You you don't have to. I'm already. I'm a Disney Plus. I've watched The Mandalorian. I'm ready as shit for all this Marvel stuff that's going to go off for Phase Four. You know, I'm. You know, you're preaching to the converted with me with this kind of interconnected interconnectivity. I love it. But you know, there's two sides. We are going to get you know on the on the light side of the force we're going to be getting a much more richer and fuller and dynamic viewing experience where, you know, you can set up more things in a smaller scale so that you can save the big scale films for more fanfare and more pomp and circumstance. Cool. Use the big screen in a way that it works, you know, do something that it does really well. Shows big shit and makes it look awesome. That's, you know, I guess a very reductive look at cinema, but it does it really well. The screen is huge. So why not do that? 
on kind of the dark side of it, you're going to be forcing people to spend more money to be able to understand the things that they have to go and spend more money on. That's, it's tricky. It's, it's not something that I can condone or condemn easily because right now it's not a huge deal, but as the streaming platforms expand and as the interconnectivity expands across the different media franchises, I think it's could become more of a problem, but that's, you know, that's a down the road problem that that's a, that's a tomorrow, Bob, that's a four or five years from now, Bob problem. So tune back in like episode 300, where I'll just be sitting here going, fuck, I had to spend $80 on streaming subscriptions. So I would know what the fuck is happening in Avengers 72. I was so lost, but no, hopefully it won't get to anything that ridiculous. But you know, with, with the the new flourishes that J.J. Abrams and co. just to get back onto Rise of Skywalker, which is what we're here to talk about, with the new flourishes that they, he brings to it, getting the core characters together, doing his best with Palpatine. We even get our little Lando cameo. You know, we get to see, yes, we get a redemption of Kylo Ren, which is kind of a bummer, but we also get to see him get stabbed, so we feel really good about that. Um, somebody drove a dump truck full of money up to Harrison Ford's house because he pops in in a little cameo, which is nice. You know, it's nice to see him come back for that, especially in that moment, a character moment like that. Considering the completely broken state of the franchise, they, they do produce an enjoyable time at the theater. Could it have been better? Yes. Should it have been better? Yes. And I think that's the difference. Things can always be improved upon. But something like Star Wars, there, there is a responsibility to maintain the, the pomp and circumstance of it. Now, I'm not one of those people that has Star Wars on a massive pedestal where it's this more of it's a presentation piece. You know, you you don't don't look at it, don't fuck with it, don't show it to any direct sunlight, don't feed it after midnight. You know, I I don't hold Star Wars in that regard. And that's if you're one of those people that do, cool. You know, that that's your love and you you have this devotion to it and that's great. I have other things that I keep on pedestals like that. I remember how disappointed and let down I felt after Phantasm V, because the Phantasm franchise is, you know, that's my pedestal piece for as weird and messy as that thing is. So when I knew a fifth one was coming, dude, I was lit up. I was Force Awakens ready for this. And I was let down. Other than one or two scenes in that movie, it was a huge disappointment. But you you move past. The old ones are still there. But Star Wars should have a sense of of grandiosity to it. That when a new Star Wars comes out, it should be an event. I get why Disney rushed and pushed so many movies and projects into development so quickly. You know, they paid four and a half billion dollars for this shit. You know, they're going to spend a couple billion dollars more making and marketing these things. So they have to get that 
that IP out there and get it making money. You know, you like just got to run for that dollar, got to catch that, got to go fast to get it. Like you got to get it, got to get it out there working. You know, cows aren't making you money unless you're milking it. And they, they hit that hard. But I think a Star Wars film once a year, this too much. You know, the Marvel films kind of get away with it because you're like, oh, sweet, awesome, another Marvel movie. But they've been building up to that. You know, getting a Star Wars should be a time for celebration. It should be a time for reminder of the the magic of cinema. You know, you get, you know, it's why it's important that the films use as much practical effects as they can. Because on screen, you're getting a glimpse into that, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But when a Star Wars movie comes out, it should be a special you know, not a rare occurrence, but it shouldn't be an all the time thing so that we can, when it does come out, we can kind of remember what that was like when not every movie was a blockbuster, you know, when not every movie was gigantic and kind of remember what it felt like to sit in those theaters and hear those 35 millimeter projectors wind up and go, Oh, this is going to be a big one. This is going to be good. And so the, the the ritual and experience of the lead up and the going to are just as are almost as important as the experience of the film itself and having one a year now i really liked rogue one the first of these ones that they put out i thought it was it was a fun movie i liked the characters i liked the plot i liked that it was still different it's a war movie you know, we get to see Darth Vader look real slick at the end. You know, everyone dies, so it's different. And it filled in a little hole in the Star Wars universe. Cool. But then now let's start hammering in on character prequels and, you know, spinoffs. You know, it's fans spoke with the, the financial failure of Solo. You know, and, and that was the first Star Wars movie that I didn't see in theaters. Because that's the only way we can speak, really, is fandom. You know, talk just... <sighs> Hollow complaining on the internet really doesn't accomplish anything. It's just negative space. Now, you could say that I'm being a hypocrite right now, but I like to think of this as maybe a little bit more of a discussion than just some kind of a bitch fest. And I think, you know, you can kind of tell what you're getting. You know, the clickbaity, all the things wrong with Star Wars. Fuck you, Star Wars. Star Wars, you know, killed my chinchilla, you know, and sold my dad into slavery. Like, no, obviously Star Wars didn't do any of that. But the way we can speak as a fan base is we speak with our wallets. That's it. You know, movies and the movie studios, they feed on money. They, as much as we like to think, it's not our adoration that they feed on. It's the financial commitments we're willing to make because of that adoration that they feed on. So if we don't want something, we have to let them know. You, you don't go and spend your money on it. You, if, if a restaurant chain is running a promotion don't go to that restaurant chain during the promotion. That's how we let them know that. And we let them know with star Wars, at least with these side prequels and these side projects that they were doing. And it's worked. They've announced that, you know, Bob Iger head of Disney now, however long this lasts, who knows that they're going to take a little bit of a break on the big screen, which I think is a good idea. 
you know, we've got the the Kenobi Disney Plus show is coming with Ewan McGregor reprising his role as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Cool. Show us some new adventures with a character we'll, we're familiar with, you know, and an actor that we're familiar with the role. We're not doing a big recast here. You know, The Mandalorian has showed us that we could do smaller scale stories in the Star Wars universe. There's lots of corners and pockets to explore. And I think that's where we need to be going with Star Wars, or at least for a while. You know, and then every five, six years, roll out a movie. Give people a chance to miss it. You know, back back in the 90s, we didn't get a Batman movie once a year, and when they rushed movies like that, they didn't work. But if you take the brand away for a little while, give people a chance to miss it, then it can be a true celebration of what the brand means when it comes back. No one's going to forget Star Wars, okay? If Disney doesn't shove a Star Wars movie into theaters every six months, nobody's going to, in four years, if they release one, no one's going to go, Star Wars, that's the one uh, with the guy with the hairband over his eye, right? Like, no, no one's going to confuse this with anything. No one's going to be lost. You know, the, the fan base survived for how many years between movies? Just on the strength of the fan base alone. Let the brand rest. Let it breathe. Let it recover some of its luster. Because we've learned it is not bulletproof. Star Wars used to be bulletproof. It was the Death Star. Until they learn that, no, there is in fact a trench and you can, you can blow this thing up. You can sully it and tarnish what it meant. So after a while, the only people going are really the, the hardcores that are going just because. They're not going because they love it. And I'd, I'd hate to see Star Wars turn into something like that. You know, more of a, uh, you know, a county fair show. You know, with a like a, a band that's past its prime that's still just, you know, pumping out, you know, local shows like that. That would just be sad. It would be sad to see it turn into something like that. But, you know, Rise of Skywalker takes us out on a semi-satisfying note. You know, it, it leaves things open at the end. You know, we, we might see these characters again. You know, it would be nice to see Ray off on, a, on another adventure. You know, or any of the three main characters on another adventure, because we didn't really get to know them this time around, so maybe next time. But I recommend it. Go see it. It is worth seeing on the big screen. You know, there's there's enough pomp and circumstance to to keep even the uh, the most embittered Star Wars fan at least amused for two hours. And I guess when you're going to the theater these days, you can't ask for too much more than that. But now from one star to the other in the uh, in science fiction, you know, we've got our two big stars, our Star Wars and our Star Treks. So fans kind of split themselves down the middle. But me, I run both. You know, I'm equal opportunity. Uh, probably lean a little bit more into the Star Trek camp, but I love both. So for these rewatches, I'm going to try. I'm obviously, I promise, I'm not going to go off for another 50 minutes about Deep Space Nine. I'm going to try and keep these kind of quick and concise, talk about a few fun points about each episode and just move it along and hopefully inspire you to go and check it out. So we are starting obviously right at the beginning. 
Episode 1 premiered January 3rd, 1993, and it was called The Emissary. So, to, uh, to paraphrase from IMDb, according to them, the first episode, and this is pretty true, when the troubled commander Sisko takes command of a surrendered space station, he learns that it borders a unique and stable wormhole. And that is, that's a nuts and bolts explanation of what the episode is about. Now, for a little background, if you weren't there in the 90s, especially the early 90s, it's kind of hard to explain just how big Star Trek was. It was everywhere. It, the the toys, TV, the we started in with the movies. It was it was an event in culture in ways that we we don't kind of get anymore. It hit all the demographics, adults, kids, old people. Everyone was into Star Trek. And it was okay to be into Star Trek. It was a big deal. So that all really comes or came off the back of Star Trek The Next Generation. And now, don't get, if you're a Next Gen fan, I'm not insulting the show when I say this, so bear with me. For all of its successes, The Next Generation, and it has many undisputable, unfuckable successes. You can't mess with that show for the most part. But it is just a riff on the original series, on the first Star Trek. You know, it's a ship of people. They go have episodic adventures. They move from one planet, one problem to the next, wrap everything up neat and clean at the end of each episode and move along. Awesome. And they told some incredible stories and reignited a franchise that was lying a little cold at this point. So when they announced that there was going to be another series, that there was going to be a sister series premiering, People were excited but hesitant because from the get-go, Deep Space Nine was going to be different. It was going, it was announced as kind of a darker take on Trek, a grittier take. It wasn't going to be as exploratory. They weren't going off on a ship to go and explore the galaxy. They were going to be station-bound. And it was going to be leaning much harder on the on the Western inspirations that Star Trek was founded upon. You know, Gene Roddenberry originally pitched the show as Wagon Train to the Stars. And Deep Space Nine is continuing in that Western motif, but it is the frontier town to which people come to and have their adventures there. And it really sets, leans into those archetypes. You know, the saloon owner, the new magistrate, the naive doctor, the untrusting locals, you know, the, the local warlords, all these things. And it makes a point of differentiating itself right from minute one of the first episode. Now, I'm going to get nerdy here for a second, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, please forgive me, but go and watch the show and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The episode starts right in the middle of the Battle of Wolf 359. So for fans in the know, that revolves around when Captain Picard was assimilated by the Borg and led an attack on Earth. And we see this battle that we had seen on Next Generation from Captain or Commander Sisko's perspective. And during this battle, he loses his wife. His wife is killed and his ship is destroyed. And he barely escapes with what's left of his crew and his, his young son. Flash forward a few years, he's angry, bitter, burned out, and sent to this space station, Deep Space Nine, or 
Terok Noor if you want to get really specific. So the Federation has been asked to help facilitate the rebuilding of a planet called Bajor that for the last 60 or so years has been under a brutal occupation by the Cardassians. Not the Cardassians, as Jack loved to say when we did our State Your Case episode, the Cardassians. They've been pillaging and murdering and ethnic cleansing, basically been World War Twoing this planet for the last 60 years. So the Federation has been asked to step in, take command of this station, and help facilitate Bajor's ability to rebuild itself. So that's where we start the show. We, you know, it's the ease us in. We're seeing a battle we're familiar with. Picard and the Enterprise are there. But it's not the light, fluffy, kind of fun trek we're used to. Cisco's right in Picard's face for minute one blames him for what happened to his wife. You know, we were so excited on Next Generation when Picard was rescued. You know, they take the implants out. You know, there's some more Borg-related stuff that they do on Next Gen, but we we move on. You know, Picard, you know, it wasn't his fault. You know, he was, he was forced into all this. Well, all that's well and good, but all those things still happened. And they impacted thousands of lives. You know, every time you see a ship blown up on Star Trek, there's people on those ships. So we're reminded and really drilled into us throughout this pilot episode, the concept of consequence, that every action has a consequence. And it's something that Deep Space Nine is, it's going to become its bread and butter in terms of drama, that because you can't just pick up, you know, pick up your bags and move from one planet to the next each episode, we get to have reoccurring interconnected character drama. And this, this pilot serves to, we're introduced to all of our characters, characters that will go through some pretty dramatic changes over the course of the series, because in a rare occurrence for a TV show, everybody arcs. By the time we get to the end, we're in a dark corner of the Star Trek universe. You know, we're cutting from the Enterprise, which is with its carpet and everything looks nice and even TV lighting. And then we go to the station and it's literally falling apart. People are packing up to leave. You know, Cisco's attache from the planet, Major Kira, hates him, hates the fact that the Federation's there because she's been a terrorist. She's been fighting people her whole adult life. And now she has to try and get along with these strangers that she doesn't want there. You've got a naive doctor. You've got a, you know, who's just so excited to be out in the wilderness doing things. And he gets his, he gets told for that. Like, what the hell are you thinking? This isn't a game. You know, this utopian view of Star Trek isn't present in this show. It's, it's about the flip side, the raw side of the galaxy. And, you know, these Federation values only extend so far, you know, out into the dark. So, like any pilot, it's a little unfocused, especially back in the day. Nowadays, if a TV show, if the pilot isn't a monumental success right off the hop, those shows are usually going down. Back in the, you know, the olden days of TV, you know, back in the day, networks used to nurture shows. As long as there was, you know, a good involvement, you know, a good amount of ratings, they would let a show go for a few years, you know, a couple of seasons, let it get its feet 
under it. And a show like Deep Space Nine, it needed to do that because it gives it a chance to get out from under the shadow of its big brother. Now, it would never really fully get out from under the shadow of the next generation. But because of when it was on television and, you know, a pretty good loyal fan base, it had the ability to grow and change. Well, when use these elements that are set up in the in this first episode, and there's a lot going on. We're dealing with the situation on Bajor. We're dealing with the the Cardassian involvement and the tension that that causes. We're dealing with religion being introduced into the Star Trek universe in a big way because religion up to this point, no one on the ships were ever really religious. They might be spiritual, you know, or have kind of a spirity bent to them, but no real organized religion that is fully realized, built, set up. And the more interesting part here about the Bajoran religion is it turns out their gods are real. They're wormhole aliens. And this centers around the wormhole that is the centerpiece of the show um, that they can go through. Turns out that Bajor's gods are actually aliens that live inside the wormhole. But the difference with these aliens is they're non-linear. They do not follow a linear sense of time. You know, whereas we we exist right now. You know, past is past, future is future. We exist at a fixed moment in space. Whereas these aliens do not. They exist at all points in space all at once. So when Cisco goes to meet them... Um, has a run-in with them, he has to have this wonderful philosophical conversation where he has to explain the concept of linear time and how we exist as people to an alien species that has no comprehension of what that means. They just see us as these kind of savage little creatures because they can look into our past and our futures all at once because they exist all at once to them. So that's really the high point of this episode. Now, Getting to know everybody, seeing everybody kind of develop their their quirks and their character dynamics, you know, the squabbling between Odo and Cork, the sparring between Cisco and Major Kira, the friendship between Cisco and Dax, all these little things are starting to be set up. But that's really the center point of the episode is Cisco's interaction with the with the wormhole aliens. So it leaves us with Cisco kind of has this realization that he's been dragging all of these horrible things from his past along with him. And in order to move forward, he has to let it go. So he, in his own way, he doesn't forgive Captain Picard for what he did, but he, he moves on in a way that all the rest of us has moved on from what Picard did when he was, when he was a Borg. So it's an interesting start to the show. Um, if you're uninitiated, if you're not a Trek fan, you're probably going to find it pretty cheesy, and I can accept that. It's it's from the 90s, the early 90s. Now, this is big budget television for the time, but it's still cheesy. It's rough. You you have to kind of accept a, a more arch style of storytelling because it is episodic. Things are built up for commercial breaks, and we're in the 4X structure and things like that. But if you can stick with it, you're going to get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And it's going through a great revival right now, mainly because of its, uh, its streaming on Netflix. So it's there. Uh, again, episode one, check it out. And we'll be coming back to this 
once every episode uh, to talk just a little bit about it. So I'll try not to go on any longer than I just did. So to uh, to bring us in to our home stretch here to wrap up this first episode of the Steal My Name podcast, let's talk about a book. What book did you read this week, Bob? Well, Bob, I read a book called Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood by Fred Rogers. Now, this is a reprint of an advice book that uh, Mr. Rogers, yes, that Mr. Rogers, had published in the 90s called You Are Special. And it includes the essay called Can You Say Hero by Tom Janod, Janod, hopefully I'm pronouncing that somewhat correctly, that inspired the film that's just come out with Tom Hanks called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood where he's playing Mr. Rogers. Now, the book itself is broken down into different sections like you are special, childhood learning, growing into an adult. And it is just what it says. It's an advice book. It's snippets of pieces of his songs, sayings from essays, interviews, whatever, just his thoughts. And it's easy to snicker nowadays at someone like Mr. Rogers because everything is, we can only, it feels like some days we can only appreciate things ironically. Everything is, is so literal nowadays that we can't just enjoy something, you know, for what it is, let alone something as innocent as Mr. Rogers. We can only enjoy it uh, ironically or snarkily or, or look how cute that is. But when you go back and you read his words or watch the show, you you get swept up in this sense of calm that he projects. And it's not just his sense of calm, but it's his consistency. And you get that reading the book. You know, at no point do you come to a little paragraph or a few sentences, because it's just broken up into little snippets, where you're like, oh, okay. I didn't realize Mr. Rogers had that vile opinion, you know, or was so backwards on this or backwards on that. It's, it's consistent and it's comfortable and it's very wise and very intuitive. And that man was completely ahead of his time in terms of how he dealt with not just children, but adults, how he dealt with human beings and carried himself as a human being. You, you feel very safe reading it and you feel hopeful. And I think that's what somebody like Mr. Rogers is always so effective at is he could cover topics as simple as tying your shoes or learning your numbers, but he could also talk about very serious real issues like death and divorce and loss and physical pain. And he'd make you feel safe while you were learning about these very serious things. And again, obviously we're adults. We have some expectation that we have to be able to deal with these things. But I would recommend this book for everybody just to get just a little reminder, you know, just a, just a little bump of a, a simpler worldview where it's just kindness. That's it. It's the idea that and he was always famous for saying, you're not special because of what you own or what you wear or what you can do. You're special because of who you are. And I think the world could use a little bit more or a lot more 
of Mr. Rogers right now. Not in an ironic sense, not in a postmodern, oh, look how cutesy I am because I'm wearing a cardigan sense. Just for the simple reality of what he was saying. That if we were all a little bit more like Mr. Rogers, maybe we wouldn't be in, you know, the shitty boot situation as a world that we are in today. So pick it up, check it out. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood by Fred Rogers. Or if you have an older copy, uh, or if you find an older copy, it is called You Are Special by Fred Rogers. So well worth looking into. Now, to to end this, actually end this, because I've promised a false ending, so now we're getting into Return of the King style endings. What I thought I'd end each episode with is uh, some recommendations. So if you liked what we talked about today, uh, here are some not necessarily right on brand suggestions to to go and check out. So because we talked we talked about Star Wars, it'd be easy to recommend the movies. Uh, obviously, if you want to watch the Star Wars movies you can go watch them. So I'm going to recommend two other properties there that you might want to check out. The Clone Wars animated series is excellent. Starts a little rough. First season's a little rough. But if you're one of those people that watched the prequels and went, this is a waste of time. Nothing here is of value. We didn't need this story. The Clone Wars cartoon shows that there were very worthwhile stories telling to be told during that era. They just didn't happen to put any of them in the movies. They put them on the animated series instead, and it's great. I've also just started watching Rebels, which I guess is a sequel to the Clone Wars series, and it's the same wit, heart, uh, animation style is all there, um, but set after the Clone Wars. Uh, but I believe, yeah, it's set after Revenge of the Revenge of the Sith, uh, but before the establishment of the Rebellion. So between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. Um, great show so far starts off. Uh, I think they learned some of their lessons from clone wars. So it starts off with a bit more of a bang, uh, well worth watching in terms of movies, um, star Wars, when it came along, it inspired a whole host of imitators of science fiction films came in its wake in the same way that when Mad Max and the road warrior hit, they kicked off the whole post nuke genre the Wasteland movies, and Conan came out with Arnold Schwarzenegger, it kicked off a whole wave of sword and sandal movies. Star Wars kicked off a whole wave of imitation science fiction pictures, usually made for drastically reduced budgets to varying degrees of success or quality. So two I would recommend that are great slices of trashy cheese is Battle Beyond the Stars and The Ice Pirates. You may be able to find those on YouTube or a streaming site, or you can check Amazon for them, but both of them are well worth looking into. So good times there. So coming next week for the second episode of the Steal My Name podcast, uh, we're moving from one big media franchise to the other. Next week, we're going to be talking about, or I'm going to be talking about, got to get used to those personal pronouns there, singular pronouns. I will be discussing Avengers Age of Ultron, the, I guess you could call it black sheep of the Avengers family. You know, it's not the first Avengers where everyone was like, holy shit, that was amazing. And it's not Infinity War and Endgame where everyone was like, holy fuck, that was insane. It's kind of this little middle ground guy where it's got a bit of shade on it. And I think that is terribly undeserved. I think it's a great film. And next week, I'm going to talk about all the reasons why you should love it too. So I want to thank you guys very much for joining me on this uh, this inaugural run, this this first run at the Steal My Name podcast. I had fun doing it. Hope you had fun listening to it. 
you can find uh, find me on uh, the all the social media should be rebranded by this point. Hopefully that doesn't present a lot of problems. So you can find me at the Steal My Name podcast on Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes. Uh, feel free to reach out. Let me know what you thought of this first uh, this first uh, run at this episode here. Um, I have a lot of movies planned that I want to discuss, but if there's something you're like, hey, I think that would kind of fit your vibe a little bit, feel free to shoot me a message on uh, on Facebook Messenger and let me know. So again, thank you guys so much. Until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.